0: Every family has its secrets. Today's guest tells the story of an all-American family in the middle of the 20th century, grappling with the stigma and tragic consequences of mental illness. He's Robert Kolker, this week on Story in the Public Square. welcome to story in the public square where storytelling meets public affairs i'm jim ludus from the pell center at salve regina university joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my great friend and colleague g wayne miller of the providence journal each week we talk about big issues with great guests storytellers journalists novelists and more to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the united states today this week we're joined by best-selling author robert kolker whose new work is called Hidden Valley Road, a towering accomplishment in narrative nonfiction. Bob, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Jim, thank you. I'm really pleased to be talking with you guys.
0: Well, the, the, your entire body of work is really remarkable, and, and Hidden Valley Road is certainly uh, just a, a really remarkable achievement, as, as, as I mentioned. But before we talk about the books and the articles, Uh, let's talk for a moment about you. How did you come to be a a writer?
1: Well, I've been uh, a magazine journalist for about 25 years now, but growing up, I knew I wanted to write, but I really didn't come to journalism in the way that a lot of my uh, friends at the time did. I came up at a time where if you wanted to be a journalist, you wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein or a foreign correspondent or like a pool reporter at the White House. And um, that was never really the way i emotionally connected with it but it was after college where i was working at a little community newspaper that i really started to um love reporting and what i found that it w- was that it was the reporting on everyday people that i really responded to uh, not just that they were everyday people but because i was coming back week after week with this you know updates about what they were doing whether they were fighting a, a plan for a skyscraper or dealing with crime on their block or running for public office there was like a drama unfolding. And so I discovered narrative nonfiction and really started to think big about ways to write long magazine stories and books. And I I feel in some ways, I never really departed from community journalism because I I tend to parachute into small towns and, and communities and families and write about them as intimately and dramatically as possible, which is what I tried to do with Hidden Valley Road.
0: How do you how do you how do you achieve that sort of the parachuting it is is that without some peril? How do you get people to trust you?
1: I I think my. um, uh, My big thing is to say that there's an opportunity to tell a deeper, uh, less superficial story than what they might be accustomed to when they think about the media, that I can spend time with them and really try and understand and let other people understand what, what they might get wrong about their situation. And it's always a situation that's rather you know, rather fraught. And so my my goal is to try to bring the temperature down a little bit, not to pump uh, more stress into the situation, but to sort of be a, a reliable grown-up. I, I'm not an advocacy journalist. I don't come in and say, I want to take your side against the bad guys and, you know, help out. Um, I sort of don't cross that line. But instead, what I say is that I'm I'm non-prosecutorial; that I'm not interested in finding good guys or bad guys or passing judgment. I'm interested in helping the world understand them better.
2: So let's get into Hidden Valley Road. Uh, as viewers of the show may know, I have written about mental health for decades, uh, and it's been one of my passions for for all that time. But I've never read anything like Hidden Valley Road. from from a narrative point of view, from the way it flows, from the information contained, the access to the people and the people themselves. Talk about the people in this book themselves, starting with the parents who were two people came out of the Second World War, they moved to Colorado and they started having children. Eventually they had 12 children. And it seemed at least at the beginning and from the outside that they were living the American dream. They're working hard, they had a house. And, but that's not really what was going on. Tell us about this family, how they met the, the couple and then their children.
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Wayne. Coming from you, that's a really enormous compliment. Uh, I have to say, I at first I thought it wouldn't be possible. Um, anyone who writes about mental health issues or any health issues knows that in America there are medical privacy laws and this is a large family. And so I thought at least one or two members of the family wouldn't be interested in, in going there and speaking about Things that had been so uh, frowned upon, or stigmatized, or feared over time, but they all were ready. And you know, as you said, this was a mid-century American family. The parents had their first child in 1945 at the beginning of the baby boom, and then their twelfth child was born in 1965 at the very end of the baby boom. And and their troubles started in the late 60s and early 70s, just as uh, America's started to bubble up unrest and insecurities as well. And so. It wasn't lost on me from the very beginning that this was kind of a unique American story to tell, independent of acute mental illness and schizophrenia. You have a very confident, adventurous, successful, admired American family where behind the scenes, there are so many horrifying things happening that they they are in complete denial about owning up to it because at the time to, to come forward with this sort of information would mean the end of the family. And so they were sort of stuck.
2: So what were some of the things that were going on behind closed doors of of this, you know, apparently bucolic American scene to the outside, obviously? What was happening? As as several of the sons were diagnosed with schizophrenia, there there was a lot going on in addition to those diagnoses.
1: I think the trouble might have really started early on with a lot of violence in the household, and I'm not talking about child abuse by the parents. I'm talking about the the boys, and there were 10 boys and two girls, all sort of turning on one another and roughhousing. And at the time in the 50s, it was easy to write it off as boys being boys and to perhaps for the parents to turn a blind eye to it. But to hear uh, the brothers talk about it now, it was a pretty fearful place to be with a lot of escalating violence. And with some brothers who later developed acute mental illness, really not understanding limits and and going hard. And um, then from there, it gets, it increases as anyone knows about psychosis. If you have you know, more psychotic breaks, things get worse and worse. And by the time Donald, the oldest son was in college, he was uh, torturing animals. He w- ran into a bonfire one night. He was um, acting out in, in ways that even he didn't understand. And, and he was frightened actually by his own behavior. And it, it took some doing for the parents to sweep that one under the rug. They went shopping for a doctor to give them a good opinion. Because again, this was the late 60s where admitting your child had a problem like that meant perhaps he would have to have a lobotomy or be institutionalized, or at the very least, the whole family would be stigmatized. So they, they were really chose to be optimistic and to think that the, the boys would just sort of grow out of their problems. But it wasn't just Donald, it was Jim and it was Brian and it was Joe and Matthew and Peter. It, 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 it one by one, six of the 12 children uh, were diagnosed with schizophrenia, and and it only all came out by the mid-70s and late 80s. They finally couldn't keep it under the rug anymore.
2: So you talk about that era. You mentioned lobotomy. That was one of the so-called interventions that was common, not just during that time, but in, in decades before. There were other treatments uh, such as insulin shock therapy. There was hydrotherapy. These things that, that are so barbaric, Certainly looking back, it was an era when psychiatric institutions were overcrowded, were inhumane. How how did how did that all happen? Didn't people who were in mental health at that time realize that a lot of this stuff was just horrible and wasn't helping even a little?
1: Um, there's sort of a second story bubbling under Hidden Valley Road beyond the family saga. And that's the story of an argument going on in psychiatry throughout the 20th century, a conversation between nature and nurture, the people who think that uh, there must be something inherited in, in nature about schizophrenia and and it needs to be medicalized and people who think that it's nurture and that something happens in, in a person's childhood to cause mental illness. And, and this debate really has never ended. It's kind of shifted now into the discussion of epigenetics. But at any rate, back in the 50s and 60s, there were people who were who were advocates of very drastic procedures like shock therapy and lobotomy and insulin therapy, coma therapy, um, all sorts of things that in many ways we look back on now as barbaric, but they felt like they had the best interests of the patient at heart. And then on the other side of the spectrum were the therapists who thought that those methods were barbaric, but at the same time, they were... Um, uh, convinced that it was mothers or bad parenting that caused, uh, schizophrenia and that too was wrong. And so everybody thought they were on the side of the angels and they were arguing with the other side. Um, but really there was no clarity about the condition.
0: So, Bob, you mentioned that, uh, the family had 12 children. The 1st, 10 were sons. The last 2 were daughters. Uh, as I understand it, the daughters were instrumental in you uh, uh, getting this story in the first place. Can you tell us about their role in your telling the story?
1: I was introduced to them first, and uh, their names are Lindsay and Margaret, and they were both in their 50s when I met them, first over the phone in 2016. And they're the youngest of the 10, and so they had 10 brothers. Six of them were schizophrenic. and listening to them talk i couldn't believe what they were saying and then then they went on they talked about how there was sexual abuse in the family and clergy abuse and a murder suicide uh, so much tragedy my first question was how all this happened to just one family and then my second question was how could they stay a family like why would they stay together and and that was the question i ended up asking the sisters over and over again over three years of reporting was you could have left town and never come back. You could have gone and changed your name or you could have gone to law school in Los Angeles and sent a Christmas card every year and and built a life there. Why, why are you still a part of this family given all the terrible things that happened? And so I, I wanted to get to the bottom of of that. And that that question really is another question, which is how do you move through traumatic experiences? How do you come out the other side when the worst thing possible happens? And how does a family stay a family in that situation? And uh, then, of course, there are the more scientific questions about mental illness, about the nature of schizophrenia and what it is and what we still don't understand about it. These were the things I was hoping to tackle, and the sisters were of amazing help.
2: So one of the amazing things about this is there, and you you mentioned this in your notes at the end, nothing is invented. Dialogue is not made up. You don't use pseudonyms. These are all real people telling real, how did you get all of those people to open up to you like that? I, 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 I'm I, trying to think of any comparison in, in, certainly in mental health right now, I can't think of anything. How, how did that happen? How'd you do it?
1: I have to tell you, I didn't think it would be possible at first. I thought that it would get uh, difficult that there'd be at least a few family members who just weren't into it. And so I took it slow at the very beginning. I said to the sisters, how about once a week I get on the phone with a different family member of yours, starting with your mother, Mimi, the matriarch of the family. And I'd spend maybe an hour on the phone with each family member and then also some of the doctors who had treated the family over the years. And in that hour, I would be very open-ended. I would start by saying, so your sisters are interested in having an independent journalist come and, and write a book about your family. What do you think about that? And when you think about a book about your family, what do you think would be like? And then just listen and hear what they had to say. And what I told the sisters was, by the end of ten weeks or so, we, we all will know one way or another whether this is doable or not. It'll be very, very clear. And if it and if it isn't, then I would just give my notes to the sisters and wish them well. And maybe they could write a memoir or something first person about it. But lo and behold, everybody was ready. And I think what I wasn't really realizing was that. There were two things really. The first was that so many decades had passed since the real horrible things happened in the family in the 1970s that people were ready. And that Mimi in particular, the mother of the family, she was over 90 now. And so there was sort of a now or never kind of feeling about telling the story that when she went, a lot of memories would be gone too. And then the second thing was that I think that many of the brothers were deferring to the two sisters because they were the youngest in the family and so many of the, of the bad things and the tragedies sort of trickled down and, and affected them most of all. So when they heard that the sisters wanted this to happen, they said, well, who are we to stop them? And so they were respectful of that.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's Popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce story in the public square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal, and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Robert Kolker, a best-selling author whose new book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, has been hailed as a towering accomplishment of narrative nonfiction. You can find Bob on Twitter, at Bob Kolker. That's B-O-B-K-O-L-K-E-R.
2: So this family became the the uh, subject of a research study by the National Institute of Mental Health, which obviously it was one of the, I guess the maybe the first of its kind. What came out of that research in terms of advancing understanding and treatment of schizophrenia in particular?
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that was another big reason why everybody was motivated to tell their family story they were convinced that the family was scientifically significant. They knew that they had been studied, that their genes had been studied for decades, but they didn't have a lot of information on exactly what was learned from their family because participation in studies like this is confidential and uh, and anonymous and not everybody kept tabs on the researchers years later. And so there were two research teams, one from National Institute of Mental Health and, and one from the University of Colorado who really worked with the family's DNA over the years and they both ended up having breakthroughs at around the same time, around 2015 or 2016, uh, which, which again, really motivated the family to, to speak to a reporter like me and talk about it because they felt like their story could help people. But there was a lot they still didn't know. And I did a lot of work with the researchers, with the family's permission to really get to the bottom of it. The short answer is that the scientists are learning that it's not just one genetic smoking gun, not one genetic mutation that causes schizophrenia. It is a variety of genetic mutations that might be unique to each family, but that those mutations all happen in particular areas of the brain that are vital for brain function. And so studying the Galvin's particular genetic uh, abnormality sort of shines a light on the area of the brain that might be most responsible for schizophrenia. So they, they help get us one step further along in the journey. And then the other research team in Colorado, they're, they're, their work is all about prevention and about strengthening those parts of the brain, making them more resilient so you don't develop the disorder to begin with. And that also is very promising.
2: So where do things stand uh, today in terms of treatment and understanding of schizophrenia, which, which I would argue is probably the, can be the most intractable of, of, of the mental illnesses that some people live with? where are we what's the state of the art now
1: i think there's bad news and good news the bad news is that the drugs that are being used to treat the symptoms of schizophrenia while very powerful and sometimes helpful to people uh, are really the same drugs essentially that have been used for 40 or 50 years they're you know thorazine and its varieties and 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 clozapine the two different classes of drugs there's been no third game changing class for schizophrenia and that's astonishing, given how many breakthroughs there have been in terms of psychopharmacology for anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder. And, and so th- it's a mystery, really, why pharma hasn't moved forward on that front. It could be because schizophrenia has this stigma that so many people are in the shadows that there just isn't a groundswell of momentum to get, get them there. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that there is less stigma now, that there is more support for families. When the Galvins finally came forward and sought help from doctors, half the doctors blamed the parents for the illness. That wouldn't happen today. Today, the families would get support as much as the patients would get support. And early intervention is now a hallmark of treatment, which can be, really make the, a world of difference to a patient. Donald Galvin, the oldest in the family, he, he first had troubles when he was 15, but he wasn't hospitalized till he was 25. What if he had gotten really good medical attention when he was fifteen? It could have, uh, perhaps, prevented a uh, dozens of psychotic breaks.
0: Hey Bob, I, you know one of the things that I think really uh, stands out in your writing is uh, your own your own empathy. Uh, you 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 bring the readers through uh, the lives that these people have lived and the challenges that they faced, uh, but with a very um, with a very sensitive touch. And I, I'm curious where that. Where that comes from for you personally, but also uh, the the value and the useful of usefulness of that, particularly in something like narrative nonfiction.
1: Well, as an interviewer, I I, I feel like I probably emulate my mother, who was a very good listener. Um, she also was a, a psychiatric professional, but she we didn't talk shop or anything like that. She was a um, a psychiatric assistant at our local hospital. But, but in terms of talking to people, she was always, she always was a quiet presence who always paid very close attention. And so I try to do that in interviews. But with narrative nonfiction, I think the intimacy is the key. And I love books that discuss potentially very, very complicated uh, topics that perhaps a person might not even be interested in or intimidated by, you know, wouldn't want to really get into. But the story itself is so compelling and the people you really feel like you're walking in their shoes, that suddenly it all becomes very easy and it goes down smoothly. And really, I think that the subject could be anything. I'm talking about books like like Moneyball, where which, you know, in one sense is a baseball story, but in the middle of it, suddenly you're learning some very complicated information about statistics that perhaps you never even signed on for. You're like, I don't care about statistics, but it's interesting because you really want to know about it. And then there are there are books closer to what I do about. You know tragedies, like and, and tragic situations, like behind the beautiful forevers by Catherine Boo, where you're in, suddenly you're in the slums of Mumbai, and and you're caring deeply about what happens to this family and all of their machinations and and feuds and controversies, and along the way you're learning about the entire uh, economy of India.
2: So Hidden Valley Road was a New York Times bestseller. It also was an Oprah's book club selection. Now that's every author's dream, <laughs> frankly. No, I, I know a lot of authors and, and I'm one myself. And how did you, how did you react to that? I mean, that must've been, you know, that's amazing. Just give us your personal reaction to being named uh, an Oprah's book club selection.
1: Well, I- I would say it's a dream come true, but it, I didn't even dare dream it because so many, <laughs> Oprah, so many, you know, so many Oprah books are not, are, are fiction. And so it didn't, didn't occur to me that a nonfiction book would necessarily even be on her radar. But in hindsight, I see mental health is a really big issue for Oprah and, and, um, and so it, it kind of makes sense in that regard. But to really answer your question, it, it completely saved this book's life. I mean, so many books have come out during this pandemic. This book came out in April, just as everything was shutting down. It wasn't even clear if Amazon was gonna be able to ship books because they'd be too busy prioritizing toilet paper or whatever else people needed. And and to know that uh, that, that Oprah Winfrey was behind the book suddenly created a whole new readership for it that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So, so she saved it, she saved the book.
2: So congratulations, you had a, a book in uh, 2013, Lost Girls about the Long Island serial killer. Can you tell us briefly about that? Uh,
1: this is another effort to to delve into a potentially troubling subject, but also um, do it intimately and talk about the people involved, and then get at a at a deeper issue, which is you know why victims in these cases often get blamed uh, more than they should, and why the police don't seem to care, and why killers target. Uh, women in sex work in particular, uh, who are the victims in this case. This is an, uh, an astonishing case in Long Island where which is still unsolved and there could be as many as 16 victims and the police have no uh, stated suspects and they've never declared a person of interest. Um, there's been practically no movement whatsoever. And I reported on it from the beginning and focused on the family members of 5 women who were all caught up in the case. And, and really looked at five different families and asked, what do they have in common? Uh, they all seem to come from struggling parts of America that, that the media tends to overlook. They they all were women whose economic options had narrowed over the years until finally they they saw how easy it can be to make money over the internet booking sex work. They'd make more money than their friends were making at Dunkin' Donuts or at Walmart. and and you just see how the money solved their problems for a long time until suddenly it created more problems for them and then they became the targets of a predator. So it's a little bit of sociology and a lot of true crime and um, and still unsolved. So the case is sort of alive as you're reading about it.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, Bob, you, you grapple with a lot of uh, difficult, heavy issues, serial killers, uh, family dealing with profound mental health issues, uh, just to name a couple, I, I, how do you balance that? Just personally, I mean, I mean, some 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 of your research, some of your interviews have to just leave you uh, emotionally spent as well. How do you how do you find balance?
1: I'm smiling because um, I have a friend who wrote a sad book, and his mother said to him, "Your next book should be a joke book." <laughs> <laughs> so I think I the uh, yeah, first one was tough because I was also worried because it was anxious because it was my first book. So I kind of white knuckled it and wrote it alone and didn't share it with people and uh, pretended everything was fine. And I resolved not to do that this time around. I, I resolved to to open up the process and share parts of the book with people and uh, develop a balanced life. In my family, we got a dog. I was like the primary carer for the dog. That helped a lot. Uh, but uh, when i'm asked this question my 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 answer is always uh, it's always very clear to me that i'm not the one really putting it out there that that the people i'm writing about are are ones who have really suffered and and to share and be open about what they're going through with the public is a huge huge roll of the dice for them so i know that however tough it is for me i i just am filled with respect for those people and also gratitude that i i have meaningful work that can that can help other people understand what it's like to be these people.
2: It's a tremendous responsibility and you discharge it admirably. Your Your magazine journalism covers a broad sweep of topics. Uh, and i read, didn't read the story, but one of them is on your site, quote, perhaps the most unbelievable survival story to come out of World War II. That got my interest and I will read, the, it haven't yet. But what was that about? About 20 seconds. 20 seconds. What was it about? It's
1: it's the amazing story of Jan Balsrud, who was rescued and carried from house to house in Norway to uh, escape from the Nazis. And he he spent weeks and weeks surviving in the frozen tundra all by himself and amputated his own toes. It's really quite quite a grisly story, but he made it through and lived a, a long life and lived to tell the tale
0: well uh bob kolker we are so grateful to you for your storytelling the new book is hidden valley road it's a remarkable read that's all the time we have this week for story in the public square if you want to know more about the show you can find us on facebook and twitter or visit pellcenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes for g wayne miller i'm jim ludus asking you to join us again next time for more story in the public square